Hello, I'm Rob Buckingham and welcome to Digging Deeper, episode 61. Through each episode, we dig deep into topics and questions to see what the Bible says. Today, we'll examine Jesus' statements to Peter found in Matthew 16. What did Jesus mean by binding and loosing? And what are the keys to the kingdom of heaven? But first, how are these principles applied today? Let's find out. What were the keys and what did Jesus mean by binding and loosing? And so we'll go back to these verses here in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 19. And I think Jesus is still talking to Peter here. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Um, And some translations, and I've been checking this out from the original language, I'm pretty sure that it's kind of in, I don't know what tense you would say, probably the past tense, that whatever you bind on earth will have, excuse me, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed uh, in heaven. And so what it's saying here is that earth responds to heaven's direction. It's not the other way around. And I think it's important that we get this right because sometimes we can see prayer as trying to bend heaven to our will, trying to bend God's arm. You know, if we keep praying and fasting enough, God will do what we want him to do. That's not prayer and fasting. That's a hunger strike. And that's not a good way to go. So what are these keys? Well, Roman Catholicism attaches the keys and binding and loosing to the spiritual power of the papacy uh, to issue edicts or, you know, pronouncements from time to time. And I think it's probably closer to the original meaning than what is common in the Protestant church where the tendency is to apply uh, the binding uh, and loosing to uh, restricting evil spirits. And so there's no biblical view, a reference rather for that view. But since becoming a Christian, and, and I gave my life to Jesus in a Pentecostal church, so I have been to dozens of Pentecostal prayer meetings over the years, and some of them are very exciting, full of the presence of God. But people are binding, they're binding the devil and we loose this person and I bind the devil and we loose the devil and all of this kind of stuff. And I often felt sorry for the devil because he's being bound and loosed and bound and off it goes. The Bible and Jesus is not talking about prayer and spiritual warfare here at all. So let's have a look at what Jesus is referring to. The keys, first of all. I want you to notice that the word keys is in the plural. Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. It's referring to the action of locking and unlocking, which is what binding and loosing are. Okay, so binding is locking and loosing is unlocking. So you've got keys and we so we could translate that. You know, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever you 
uh, lock up on earth will have been locked up in heaven. Whatever you unlock on earth will have been unlocked in heaven. And of course, Peter unlocked the kingdom of heaven, first of all for the Jews on the day of Pentecost as recorded in Acts chapter 2, and then he unlocked the church or the kingdom of heaven to the Gentiles at Cornelius's house, and we read that in Acts chapter 10. Binding and loosing are usually done by those in church leadership roles, not exclusively, but, but quite often. So particularly the fivefold ministry gifts that are listed in Ephesians chapter 4, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. These are the people, the leaders who make spiritual decisions in applying God's truth to daily life for the benefit and for the good of all of God's people. So let's take a few um, examples. Let's take a look at some of the examples of binding and loosing or locking and unlocking that we find in Scripture. These things are particularly important where something is, uh, that is usually true or a command that is typically followed is temporarily suspended or bound or locked up for the common good. So we're going to start by looking at some of the examples that we find in the Tanakh uh, or what Christians refer to as the Old Testament. The first of them is the Battle of Jericho, and you can read about that in Joshua chapter 6. And God, heaven, gives them the strategy. So we want you to, uh, the uh, people of Israel, you to march around Jericho once a day for six days, and then on the seventh day you're to march around it seven times and then you're to shout, and, of course, that's what they did. But a couple of commandments were suspended or locked up or bound during that time. For example, the Levites were exempt from military duties, but on this particular occasion they led the army. And so the command for them to be exempt was bound or locked up and they were loosed or unlocked from the command for this particular instance to be able to lead the army. And, of course, on the seventh day, they marched around the city seven times. It was like, well, normally they would have to be, that was the Sabbath, and, and there was a commandment about the Sabbath that was very strictly adhered to, that they weren't allowed to do any work on the Sabbath day, and yet here are the people um, loosed or unlocked from that command. So that command was locked up or bound for that period of time. The people were unlocked from it and they were able to march around the city. And of course, uh, that led them to great victory. The people were loosed from these commands by heaven. Their leader, Joshua, loosed them on earth to do heaven's will. The second example is the midwives. And I love this story. We find it in uh, the first chapter of the book of Exodus. And the midwives uh, were given a commandment by Pharaoh. This is the command that Pharaoh gave them. When you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. Now, the midwives were bound by law to obey Pharaoh. But for this particular instance, they were unlocked from that law or loosed from the law. They also lied to cover up their disobedience and God actually blessed them for lying. So the law that says 
you shall not lie, that was locked up in this particular instance and the people were loosed or unlocked from it because of a higher purpose of saving saving human life. We find the same thing happen with um, Rahab the prostitute. She lied as well to protect the Hebrew spies. You can read that in Joshua chapter 2. She told the soldiers that the men had already left even though they were still hiding in her house. And uh, James chapter 2 and verse 25 says that she was justified or declared not guilty by God because of her good works. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 31 says that her faith saved her life. Uh, That's absolutely stunning. So uh, we find the same uh, thing of a modern-day example, Corrie ten Boone. Have you ever read the book The Hiding Place? It was one of the first books I read when I became a Christian, absolutely stunning book. There's a movie as well. If you've never read it, really encourage you to read The Hiding Place. But uh, Corrie ten Boone and her family hid the Jews from the Nazis during the Second World War. And when uh, the Gestapo came knocking on the door, the ten Boone family lied. They said, no, we're not hiding uh, any Jews here. Um, so they lied. Um, eventually they were caught. And Corey and her sister were sent to a concentration camp and the hiding place is all about that story and it, it is an absolutely stunning read. And so the law that says you shall not lie was locked up or bound during that time. The people were loosed from it because telling a lie to save a human life is a, a lower, a higher law cancelling out a lower one. The third example is in 1 Samuel chapter 21, and it's David eating the consecrated bread, the holy bread of the temple. He was hungry, and you're not supposed to eat the consecrated bread. And actually, the Pharisees bring this up with Jesus in Mark chapter 2. Now, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as, as his disciples walked along, they began to pick up some of the heads of grain and the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? What always gets me about those verses is like, where were the Pharisees? Jesus and the disciples were walking through grain fields and then suddenly like these pop-up Pharisees (laughs) threw the corn. (laughs) Why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the king, sorry, in the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. So under unusual circumstances, for the good and blessing of his people, as well as to demonstrate his unfailing love, God may temporarily suspend parts of his law for his people to maintain certain requirements under threatening conditions could be detrimental and or fatal. The temporary suspension of regulations is a gracious act of the Lord to loosen his people for their welfare, safety and peace. And so that particular example there of David uh, being Um, loosed from that law because he and his companions were starving and so it was right for that law to be suspended or locked up and for them to be loosed from it. We'll come back in just a moment and uh, look at some examples from the New Testament scriptures. 
Let's have a look at uh, some New Testament examples here. And the first of them is the need for flexibility in changing times. Uh, Changing times and circumstances require God's people to be flexible. Unbending Christians invariably lack grace towards other people. Have you noticed uh, Matthew 23 records what Jesus thought uh, about uh, rigid and legalistic religious people. Uh, Paul said about that in 2 Corinthians 3, that the letter kills or the law kills, but the spirit gives life. Jesus didn't come to bind people in condemnation, but rather to loose them into freedom. And he talked about this in Matthew 11, when he said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus is speaking here to a group of people who've been bound up under law and understanding that um, the religious authorities uh, uh, up to Jesus' time, it was like, you know, if 10 commandments are good, 600 must be better. So I think by the time of Jesus, there were 613 laws and many of them were wonderful, but, but they were binding people up and the laws had actually been considered as greater than people. So one of the things you'll notice in the Gospels is Jesus turning the tables. And I'm not just talking about the tables that were turned in the temple, but he's flipping things around because when religion makes law more important than people, it's lost its way. You know, there was the the law of the Sabbath, for example, and Jesus said, you know what? The Sabbath was made for people not the other way around. You know, this was actually supposed to be uh, a day of rest from labour. It was actually to be a really good thing, but you guys have turned it into this legalistic uh, law that's wearing people out. And so Jesus is talking to people who've been worn out by religious observance, and he says, come to me, all all you who are weary and burdened by this legalism and I will give you rest. And he says, take my yoke upon you. Now, a rabbi's yoke was the things that the rabbi would teach. So there were a number of well-known rabbis of Jesus' day. He was one of them. Um, And and they all had different um, things that they taught with authority or shmika. And so you'll remember in the Gospels that Jesus authority or Jesus Schmieker was recognized by the everyday people. They got, wow, he's one, he teaches we Schmieker or authority, not, not like our teachers of the law. So Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. He's saying, take my teaching upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle, humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke, my teaching is easy and my burden is light. So what he's saying here really is bind yourself to my teaching, to my yoke, and I will loose you into rest. So flexibility in changing times. The second example from the New Testament is the Gentiles in the church. We find this particularly in Acts chapter 15 that records the first major controversy for the church 
about whether or not the church should admit Gentiles into the fellowship of believing Jews. Some believed that these Gentiles could be admitted but had to be circumcised first, which, you know, is, is, is not good news for a Gentile man, let me tell you. After the apostles and the other disciples met in Jerusalem, Peter showed a way of loosing when he ruled that both Jews and Gentiles were saved by faith since circumcision was only a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And that's from Acts chapter 15 and verse 9. Then James, who was the head of the Jerusalem fellowship, he issued a decree to bind believing Gentiles to abstain from four practices that were particularly viewed as pagan practices in the first century by the Jews. So Acts 15 verses 13 to 20 uh, really, sorry, verses 19 and 20. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We shouldn't bind them up in lots of regulations. Instead, we should write to them, telling them four things. Abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Those four practices, which, by the way, were identical to the initial requirements of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council for admitting Gentiles into Judaism. It's interesting to note that out of those four things, only one of them would apply to Christians in the Western world today. We would still ask people to abstain from sexual immorality. The other three are completely irrelevant. We are not bothered about food being polluted by idols. It's really not a thing in our society, we're not bothered about meat of strangled animals and blood. I mean, if you want to eat black pudding, blood pudding, uh, knock yourself out. It's <laughs> revolting stuff, I think. But there's no law uh, that binds you from eating things like that. We hope you're enjoying this Digging Deeper podcast and finding help understanding the Bible and how it applies to life. Here at Digging Deeper, we'd appreciate your help letting others know about this podcast. One way to do this is by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. And please like Rob Buckingham's public figure page on Facebook. You can interact with us there and ask questions you'd like Rob to answer in future episodes of Digging Deeper. Now back to Rob. And then there's um, some contemporary examples that, that I'll use as well. So that to make sure that you've really got um, this understanding of what it means to uh, bind a law and to loose people from a law for a period of time. We see this operating in our society all the time with emergency vehicles. So a police car, an ambulance, a fire truck, they can go through a red light. Now, if I go through a red light and I get pinged, I'm going to be fined. Is it right to drive through a red light? Normally, no. But there's a higher law that comes into play. So the protecting of a life, the catching of a criminal, um, uh, putting out of a fire, all of those things are higher laws. And so an ambulance, for example, is loosed from a law that would normally bind vehicles stopping at a red light for a higher law, okay? They're loosed from that. If an ambulance is just driving down the road and they're not on the way to an emergency and they don't have a patient in the vehicle and they come up to a red light, they have to stop. But if it's an emergency and they've got the siren going, they can they'll slow down, but they can keep going. Uh, the second example here is the discipline of children. 
the role of parents who bind or restrict their children's freedom temporarily to loosen them later from that restriction to a better and safer way of life. So you might say to your little child, don't cross the road of traffic. Uh, that binds them to a rule until they're old enough to be loosed to enjoy the roadway in safety once they've got the maturity to do that. We see the same with uh, judges in our judicial system. They have the power to bind and loose. They have the power to lock up a person in jail. They also have the power to release them or to loose them. Again, unlock. Uh, the example of a de facto family, a couple in relationship, and this is something that we've seen many times over the years at Bayside Church. Uh, sometimes a family come in, um, and particularly if they're um, a, a straight, a heterosexual family, um, we wouldn't ever know that they weren't married, but sometimes they've been together for years and years, sometimes decades. Invariably, they have children in tow. Sometime later, we learn that they're actually not married. They're just in a de facto relationship. But, you know, we, uh, we don't bind people to the law then. Uh, the higher law, and I know that I've heard horror stories where people like this have gone into a church and as soon as the church has discovered that they're not married, the couple have been told that they've got to separate until they're able to be married and all of that, a higher law comes into play here, and that is the law of not breaking up a family unit. And I would do the same for a same-gender couple uh, as well, um, whether they had children or not. You don't break up a relationship. The higher law there comes into play. Another example is women in ministry, and particularly women speaking, preaching, teaching in the church. I mean, why are women allowed to speak in the church when the Bible says they should be quiet? And there are two passages of Scripture that teach this very clearly. You can read those in your own time, in 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2. But what Paul is talking about here is cultural hindrance. So in the, in the uh, culture that he was writing to, uh, it would have been a hindrance to have women teaching the word of God, just like there would be in some nations today, particularly Muslim countries or some Muslim countries, if they're very conservative, they wouldn't allow a woman to teach a mixed crowd of men and women. Uh, and so uh, the gospel would be hindered if uh, a church allowed a woman to teach men and women in that culture. But the gospel is also hindered in our culture in the Western world when women are not allowed to teach and pe preach. And so we've got to understand there in some situations, in some cultures, women would be bound from teaching and preaching, whereas in Australia they should be loosed from that restriction to teach and preach. Uh, there is one more reference that I would like to just quickly get to before I check your um, final comments, and that is uh, the reference to binding and loosing uh, two chapters later in Matthew chapter 18, and I'll read to you from verse 15 of Matthew 18. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. 
If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven or would have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two or uh, two of you on earth agree about asking, agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Very important that we take that whole thing in context together. I hear people just pluck out one verse and make it mean something that it was never meant to mean. So the emphasis in this entire passage of Scripture is helping to restore people when conflict has happened. Note that right at the very beginning. So if your brother or sister sins against you, if they've offended you in some way, point out their fault just between the two of you. So nothing is irreparable. And what Jesus is teaching here, first of all, is that if someone offends you, go to them privately. Don't make it a public affair. Public shaming was considered sinful in the first century world, and it should still be considered wrong today. We shouldn't publicly shame anybody. If someone offends you, just go to them. Don't talk about it with other people. Just go to them and, and chat it through. Why? Because invariably they won't know that they have offended you and they'll be surprised and go, oh, my goodness, I am so sorry. I had no idea. End of conflict. And if they go, well, yeah, yeah actually I, I did, I did realise I offended you and I am so sorry, then end of conflict. But if they don't hear you, then Jesus said, well, the next stage is to take two or three witnesses. So he quotes there from the Old Testament scriptures that every matter should be established by two or three witnesses. And preferably they are witnesses to the original offence. So this is not being spread any further. Uh, but if repentance is still not forthcoming, in Jesus' day, he would say to them, go to the Jewish judicial assembly or go to the local synagogue. Um, here the word church is used, ecclesia, uh, which could have been a synagogue um, or, or, of course, in the modern-day uh, Western world, a church. What he's saying here is attempt to get resolution within the community of faith. Don't make this bigger than it needs to be. Bring in someone like a pastor or a church leader who can mediate between the two of you and hopefully bring you to a point of resolution. By the way, I very rarely have to get to that third point. Um, normally things are sorted out very, very quickly, I find. But of course, if they still won't listen, Jesus says, well, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That is, as a non-Jew excluded from the religious life of the Jewish community. They'd already had three warnings about this, and so it should be resolved by then. And then verse 18, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. In other words, the Jewish high court was believed to be acting on the authority of heaven, and it's the same with the leadership of the church. If you have to bring an offence, uh, which a matter that can't be resolved, if you bring that to a church leadership, the church leadership then will act with the authority of heaven. And then we get to these final verses here. Again, truly I tell you, 
that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. And so the two or three refer back to the two or three witnesses of verse 16. Jesus was with them. In other words, agreeing with the verdict. They would also pray for the repentance and subsequent forgiveness of the straying person. Jesus was with them agreeing. So in the Old Testament, the witnesses were the first to execute judgment. But when we get to the New Testament, the the witnesses were the first people to pray. And that, my friends, is very, very good news. We find a fantastic uh, example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There was an example there, a man in the church who was having an affair with his stepmother. And so incest was happening and he wasn't repentant. And so Paul wrote to them in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 5, rather, in verse 13, he says, expel the wicked man from you. So they had to remove him from the community for a period of time. But then later, Paul wrote a second letter to Corinthians. In chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, he says, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me, talking about this same young man, he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. In other words, the withdrawing of fellowship for a period of time. It's enough now, says Paul. Now instead you want to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. So the man is first of all bound or restricted, locked up from gathering with the church for a period of time, just a season, but he's later loosed from this ruling and free to gather again. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. A new episode of Digging Deeper is out every Wednesday. If you like this podcast, please share it with others and rate and review us on iTunes. That goes a long way to help others find us. If you have a question or topic you'd like Rob to address, please contact us at Rob Buckingham's Public Figure Facebook page. Join us next week as Pastor Rob discusses the Trinity. Is God really three in one? Is the Trinity something that's found in the Bible or is it a human construct? All that and more next week. We hope you'll join us then.